You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Robin Simon, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson. And this is Doc G. So, Paul Thompson... What's up next? Well, hey, Doc, I'm really excited about today's conversation because we have Robin Simon, who is the producer director of the documentary film Do No Harm, which we had the privilege of watching yesterday. We had a quick preview and we want Robin to give a quick introduction. Thanks, guys. It's really a pleasure to be here. I know this is a financial podcast, but I know we're going to talk about doctor related issues, but it really does relate to finances as well. And my background is I work for PBS as a producer, uh, won a couple of Emmys along the way. And prior to that, I started off my career as a TV news reporter, then moved on to longer form. So this is my fifth independent documentary film. And I also produce a lot of TV series. Before we jump in, I will note that while in today's episode we obliquely touch on financial independence and personal finance, it's important to note that financial freedom relies on the possibility of good, affordable health care. Today, we discuss the safety and well-being of some of those who provide it. Before I ask any questions, Robin, I think I want to read your synopsis that I saw on the website for Do No Harm, just to give people an idea of what the movie is about. This is the Do No Harm synopsis. Jumping off hospital rooftops, hanging themselves in janitorial closets, overdosing on drugs, their A students and their suicides are often like well-planned school projects. Doctors are our healers, yet they have the highest rate of suicide among any profession. Medical students and families of physicians touched by suicide come out of the shadows to expose the silent epidemic and truth about a sick healthcare system that not only drives our brilliant young doctors to take their own lives, but puts patient lives at risk too. So Robin, tell me, how did this become your story to tell? It started back in 2014 when an investor of mine sent me an article. It was an op-ed piece in the New York Times about these two young doctors who jumped from the roofs of their hospitals within a week of each other. And I come from a family of physicians. I had a grandfather who was a physician, an uncle, cousins who were at the Cleveland Clinic. And I know how difficult it is to get through medical training. And uh, it just didn't make any sense to me because they have never expressed any challenges about being a doctor. 
they're like the pillars of our family. So when I read this article, I was really shocked. And I just said, I need to find out why. What is the cause? What would these otherwise brilliant, logical thinking, young people, what thought process could go into making that decision that this is the logical solution to my problem? You mentioned that some of your family members are physicians and you had never heard them talk about such things. And it makes me think about how insular a profession it really is. Was it hard for you as an outsider to come in and have people open up to you about these stories? It was very challenging because there's fear of retaliation. There's a fear of showing weakness. So many were afraid of the repercussions. And it was lucky to get Hawkins who's our main character, John and Michelle Deal, who lost their son, Kevin, to suicide when he was a, a medical student. You know, as parents, there's a lot of shame involved. You know, my son, my daughter, the doctor. And then to have this happen, there is a lot of denial that goes on. So it was very, very challenging. I feel like when you talk about shame and denial, it's really easy for society to minimize what's actually happened. Can you talk a little bit about the numbers? How many physicians is this affecting? That's the thing is that the numbers that I can give you right now and that I will share are really woefully underreported numbers. The number that's thrown around in suicide circles is about 400 physicians a year die by suicide. But I think just in, you know, living this story for the last six years almost, I think it's probably four times that. And the reason why we don't have good statistics is that, you know, hospitals and families and communities are very good about hiding this. And it's also very easy to miscode a suicide. And doctors are also very good about making it look like an accidental drug overdose or an accidental drowning or, you know, so it's very difficult to get a handle on the true numbers. But we do know that 50% of physicians report being burned out. And we also know that when medical students enter med school, they are as stable and mentally healthy as the rest of the population, or a little bit even better suited for this career. And within a year, 25% are clinically depressed, and it spirals down from there. I want to echo what you just said. I can think of two physician deaths in my community in the last bunch of years, and one was a drowning, and another was a physician whose car was hit by a train. And both of those were circumstances where you wonder if there was a little bit more to it that really no one was talking about. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Before we even get into this discussion, especially for our non-physician listeners, what does it take to become a physician nowadays? Let's start with educationally. What education do people go through to become a physician? You know, it's a, a multi-year process and an incredibly financially difficult process to get through. And depending on the specialty, it's even more years of training. So after your bachelor's, you, you go to medical school, which is four years. And then after that, you go to a residency, which is three to seven years. And then after that, if you specialize, you do a fellowship, you could be looking at additional training. So the first year alone, as you saw in the film, you know, you're already $50,000 in debt. As someone says in the film, what are you going to do? Quit? You know, you're almost forced to keep going because you're $50,000 in debt. And by year two, you're $100,000 in debt. 
what are you going to do? What kind of job are you going to get that's going to pay for this type of loan? So you keep going, even though you realize you may not be cut out for this or you feel so trapped, but there's no way out. Yeah, I think there's a default state, right? For people who are in medical education, you are either wealthy or indebted, but there's very little in between. Yeah, no, that that feeling of being trapped so early in the process for a medical student, you know, they go in as these idealistic healers. I want to save patients. I want to heal the world. And in their first year, they find out it's more like an assembly line and you're actually graded on how quickly you can get in and out of a room. And as you saw Hawkins, who is so typical, he says, you know, my dreams were dashed because I wanted to spend time with people. And that's not what you're taught. And compromising your integrity along the way and you become soulless just to survive for financial reasons, you have to continue. So it's really soul crushing the system that we have right now. Medical schools are incredibly competitive. It's cutthroat. So imagine you've got these young idealistic healers who've been getting gold stars since they were in kindergarten. And now they're thrown together into a situation where they're no longer the top of the class. They may be in the middle. That alone is tough to cope with. But the cutthroat competitiveness comes from the fact that in 1997, they froze the number of residency spots. So they increased the number of spots available in medical school to prepare for baby boomers who would be accessing medical care more as you know, time went on. So they were thinking, oh, we'll increase the number of medical spots. And of course, med schools make money, the higher enrollment there is, but they froze the number of residency spots. So in other words, the government through Medicare, they pay the resident about $40,000 a year, but the government pays about 120 per resident. But they froze that number. So now a swelling of medical students competing for the same number of residency spots that existed in 1997. And of course, on the other end of it, you've got patients who are increasing in number, have more acute illnesses. The turnover in in hospitals is much quicker. So it's a system that's really, it's like a perfect storm. As you talk about this perfect storm for medical students, I can't help but think of Hawkins, the protagonist of the documentary film, or at least to Mm -hmm. me, definitely is the protagonist of the film. Tell me a little bit about the cover art, and I'm going to describe it for our members. So if you look at the cover art for Do No Harm, you see hands clasped behind back, clutching a stethoscope and a scar over the wrist, over the radial artery. Tell me about that image and its connection to Hawkins. Well, the artwork speaks to the hidden epidemic of suicide, that the scars are hidden under his white coat behind the back to hide the truth from patients. And of course, that's uh, how Hawkins attempted suicide. And if it was not for his wife calling him, uh, he probably wouldn't be with us right now. He would have bled out. So that's how we came to that artwork. How did you come across Hawkins when you started making this film? How did you get in touch with him? How did he become part of this process? 
So it was really interesting. And, and you see from the film how Hawkins and uh, John and Michelle Deal, who lost their son, how their stories are woven together, which was really interesting. And uh, filmmakers, you know, love to have that sort of threading, you know, the woven stories throughout a film. So we were connected through Dr. Pamela Weibel, who, as many may know, you know, she's, I, I call her the Erin Brockovich of this movement. So she runs like a, a hotline for med students and physicians who are struggling, suicidal. And so she's connected with thousands. And she also has like a, you know, tell seminar that she does and retreat. So when I started to research the story, she introduced me to John and Michelle Deal, who had just lost their son with like weeks ago at this point. And then she heard from Hawkins independently. And she's, wow, he's the same exact age as John and Michelle's son. I want to introduce them to each other because maybe Hawkins can answer questions that their son can no longer answer. Why would you do this to us? You know, we, we were a family. We had a happy family. How could you do this? And perhaps Hawkins could provide answers and give them semblance of, you know, peace. So that was happening. And so I was brought into this meeting and I said, look, I really need to be there at this first meeting of Hawkins with John and Michelle. So this is the foundation of, of the film, their relationship along with Pamela, you know, being sort of like, you know, the, the uh, surrogate, you know, hope a guide, guardian angel for Hawkins and John and Michelle, really. What's fascinating about Hawkins is that we thought this film was, he had a suicide attempt in his third year, and then he was able to recover. And we went to his medical school graduation. And we thought, okay, this is the perfect ending for this film. He graduates from medical school. You remember that scene in the film? So that was like, you know, summer that he was graduating just before the summer. And then over the summer and into the fall, we hear things are not going well at his residency. In fact, he was suicidal again. He was upstate New York and really struggling. So Pamela and I said, we should go see him. We should go see what's up because he was really isolated at that point. His wife, Brittany, had left him. She went to New York with him, but then they split up. So imagine a 10-year relationship and within a few months of residency, they're now broken up and she's gone. So now he's really alone. So we went to see him and it was pretty frightening. I mean, he looked terrible. He was working, you know, 24-hour shifts, sometimes longer. He was contemplating suicide. I left out quite a bit of what he said in terms of his suicidal ideations when we went to New York, but it was very scary. Now think about it. He's part of this film already and that he was thinking of suicide knowing that he was featured in a film about suicide and we were going to have this graduation as the hope for the ending of the story. Even with that, it just shows you the tunnel vision that exists when someone is suicidal. So it was scary. Let's talk a little bit about the transformation. So the Hawkins we see in the beginning of the film is much different than the Hawkins we see during that period where you go and interview him after he started residency. Talk a little bit about how medical students are transformed from day one of medical school to the point they get to residency. What happens to them? So when med students get into med school, you know, they're very idealistic, full of energy, vigor, 
enthusiasm, you know, they're ready to heal the world, save the world. It's very empowering. And sometimes from the very first meeting they have with their supervisor, their souls get crushed, basically. They get told they're going to be studying all hours of the night. People do that. But on top of that, you know, sleep deprivation, the financial debt, isolation, you know, they have no one no family members there, which people do when they go away to school. But when you're facing this level of cutthroat competition and you're used to being the top of your class and you're surrounded by people who aren't really your friends, they're competitors, you can sink pretty quickly within the first year, which is why we see the stats that we do. And then it just gets worse from there. And when they get to their third year, which is when they start clinical rotations, when they start actually seeing patients, you know, having hands-on, because the first two years, it's like, you know, book work. And somebody in the film said, you know, they learn more in a couple of weeks than they did in an entire semester, you know, in undergrad. So you can imagine everything that could go wrong with the body, and then everything we know about how to diagnose and fix a problem. So much more so than 50 years ago when doctors first started, or even 20 years ago. So I really get bugged when I hear old time doctors say, oh, we had to go through the same thing. Well, you didn't because medicine has changed so much. Technology, just, you know, everything we know. So it's a completely different environment. You know, doctors used to be able to sleep on call. So by the third year, after two years of a lot of traumatic book work, and then they start to see patients. So now they really are faced with life and death in their hands, and they're still sleep deprived. So they're thinking, wow, I'm not at my best, but I have this patient's life in my hands, and I'm on a sinking ship, and nobody is there to support me. I can't complain because I'll be perceived as weak. So they just keep their heads down and try to get through it. And Obviously, you know, not everyone is dying by suicide, but the level of trauma that they're experiencing is just unnecessary. You can get through medical school without putting somebody through this sort of abusive system. I can connect with exactly what you're saying because I remember that trauma and I remember the isolation during my own training, but a lot of people don't go through medical training. What do you say to people who say, look, Hawkins is an outlier? that that's not the typical story of someone going through medical school. Is there an argument for that? I mean, because we know that not every medical student takes his or her life or attempts suicide, clearly there are circumstances that some do. But my response to that is he started off normal. He never went for, you know, therapy. But within the first year, he was covering from a suicide attempt and in an inpatient hospital, mental hospital. I mean, that's not normal for someone who doesn't have a history like that. So I've spoken with over the course of the four years, physicians who were at the top of their class who tell me, you know, I pulled over to the side of the road crying and wishing I could just drive my car right into the median so I could just get off of this merry-go-round and just get some rest and just heal. I like praying to get a terminal illness. I mean, it's like crazy to hear this from future doctors. It's just not right, you know, for them to be even speaking this way. 
One of the things I definitely hear naysayers speak about is resilience. And they say, well, we need to make our doctors and medical students more resilient. Does that kind of yeah. thing miss the mark? It absolutely misses the mark because, as you know, physicians are the most resilient people we know. Now, I will agree that they do have to acclimate to the current medical culture, which is the corporatization of medicine. And so they do need to learn how to cope with that. But my response to that is, do you really need to learn how to cope with that? What if physicians and patients united to say, no, we want to give patients the care that they deserve, and we want to have the careers that we dreamt about when we were kids and wanted to be a doctor and help people. Why don't we unite together? And I think this film, what it does, it opens a dialogue about what do we want from our healthcare system? We're sort of at a crossroads as we see more and more clinics being taken over by these huge you know, hospital conglomerates. So you know, what do we want out of our medical care? And so I hope this dialogue will lead to real change and not to mention save a lot of lives because we all know that if you have a physician who is not functioning physically or emotionally, you cannot give good quality care. Throughout the film, I hear words like dehumanizing or statements like it erodes the spirit or we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, exploitation. Is this a systemic issue? Is this a human rights issue? This is a human rights issue on so many levels. I mean, what other profession are you forced to work 28-hour shifts? As of last April, young physicians, they're called interns, first-year residents, are now required to work 24 plus 4, so 28-hour shifts. When there is a lot of documentation, and it's in the film from these two well-known sleep experts, that after 16 hours, you are not functioning at a capable level. So we're setting up these young doctors to fail by forcing them when they're sleep deprived to go into a patient's room and care for them. And sometimes without, you know, their attendings around and they're afraid to call their attendings because it looks like, oh, they're, they're incompetent. So they don't want to call their attendings and they're sleep deprived and now they're taking care of a patient. I mean, I think that's pretty abusive to put someone through that, especially at the beginning of their careers. If they make a mistake, it's like their careers could be over before it starts. And this is not new, right? I mean, there was awareness of this back in the 80s with the Libby Zion case. Is that right? For people who don't know, Libby Zion was a young woman who died and a resident had treated her in the emergency room in New York. And it was thought that that resident hadn't slept much in the last 24 hours and a medication error was made. I mean, it's not like this is a new issue. It's not new. And that's what's so frustrating. What's positive is that I think people are talking about it more it was more hidden, I would say, until 2014. Something happened with this, these two cases in 2014 with these two young doctors that really started to get these big organizations like the ACGME or AAMC, AMA, to start talking about it. Now, whether they're successful and how quickly they really work and how responsive they are remains to be seen. There are a lot of meetings going on and there are a lot of new policies in place, but does it really result in a reduction in burnout, suicide? I haven't seen it and neither have they. 
And let's bring this back to Hawkins, because what happens to him after he tries to commit suicide? I mean, does that bring him resolution? No. The thing is, you know, when he survived, and he's happy he survived, it's almost worse, because now you have the stigma of having a suicide attempt, and it was just a miracle that he had a program at Des Moines University that and a mentor there, Tom Green, who really, you know, embraced him and wanted to help him. In many programs, you're damaged goods, and so you're out. And the reason is, like, why do we need you? Why should we take a risk on you? Because you may put this hospital in jeopardy. You may put this med school in jeopardy by hurting somebody. So we're not going to take a chance on you when we have so many options out there because the med schools are just swelling with candidates. So why should we take a chance on a guy who's attempted suicide? But fortunately, he did have a mentor, but he's still, and you saw the scene where he's driving, even at the end, he's worried that he's going to be known as the suicidal doctor, that people are going to say, even from the patient, to say, I don't want you to treat me because you attempted suicide. So there's a stigma that we're trying to fight against from within the industry that, you know, oh, you're weak because you attempted and then there's this external stigma from patients. I mean, I remember, it's so funny, guys, that I showed the film to a group of patients, you know, civilians. And at the end, one guy said to me, for me, a win is not Hawkins practicing. That's not a happy ending for this film. And I was just shocked, you know, because he's an incredible physician, so sensitive to patients, so caring. I mean, it's usually the most caring physicians are the ones that struggle the most, struggle with having to exist in a system that is not what they imagined and no way to change it, no way to get out. So it's often the most sensitive that and the best physicians that struggle. So the stigma is tremendous. Even now, with what's going on now, he's been fortunate, I think, because he's been part of the film, which is a big risk in itself to expose yourself. But he's incredibly courageous. And he's getting some opportunity, I think, because people see the film and they realize he should be given a chance. It's not right. When you talk about Hawkins and the hopelessness, and we think about other people in this same situation, why don't they just walk away? I mean, what you're describing is an abusive situation. Why don't students leave? The financial debt is crushing, and they really can't do anything else. They don't have a passion. I mean, medicine is not a job. It's not even a career. It's a calling. So when you have a calling, it's hard to walk away. So maybe they could be a massage therapist or, you know, a nurse practitioner, or they can, you know, find some alternative way to still heal or be a physical therapist. But, you know, they consider those options when they went to medical school. They wanted to be a doctor. They wanted to be the one who was responsible for healing patients. So these other alternatives aren't really good alternatives for them because it is such a calling. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. 
This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. So what do you think happens to a student who is starting to feel this way, maybe getting suicidal and decides to go to his or her school for help? Is help available? Are there people to support students in these situations? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the discussion we're having. When we take the film, you know, we've screened at more than 80 medical schools and hospitals around the country. And uh, the film will be on uh, PBS, public television, starting next May. But the film tour is going strong, and it's always with a panel discussion. And the most important point is we must destigmatize mental illness. So what services do you have to support med students? I remember when I was shooting the film, I talked to a dean of a medical school and she brought me into her office and she said, I'm so proud of my, you know, my school. And I want to let you know that we opened up a mental health clinic for our students. It's really great. And I said to her, well, do you have any measured results? You know, are people using it? And she said, oh, no, but I mean, it's here. It's for them. They have access to it whenever they want. And I'm like, okay. And then I went to meet with a group of students. And I said, oh, well, I spoke to your dean. And she said, you know, that she opened up this new, you know, mental health clinic, separated it from the physical health clinic, which I don't know why she did that. It's just now everybody knows you're going to a mental health clinic. I mean, that just that alone. And they said to me, yeah, you know where this mental health clinic is? It's in the administration building on the fourth floor, and the administrators are on the third floor. Do you think anyone's going to go into the elevator and push floor? It was never used. So there's an effort, but we're trying to get around the country and say, you really have to have measured results. You really need to get the input from medical students, not just tell them what's good for them, but involve them in the process so it really works. These efforts that you're trying to do right now with these wellness directors and coordinators, let's not just have it be lip service. Let's have it really help these kids. But change the system 
So they don't need a mental health clinic when they're on the brink of suicide. I mean, let's fix the system while we also, you know, give them support. Well, let's talk about that system a little bit because you've mentioned that a couple of times about this uh, sick healthcare system. What is the fix? What can be done to aid in this flawed system so that it's more palatable for people to come through without getting PTSD or depression or being suicidal? You know, St. Louis University had a pilot program, which is in the film, and they saw the depression rates fall from like 27% to like 4%. And how they did it wasn't just one thing, it was multiple things that they did together. So it's not just opening up a mental health clinic. What they did was they got rid of classes that people were failing, that were just too hard. They allowed the students to have time off so they could contribute to the community and feel that they doing something proactive and, and in line with their passion. And then they also offered, you know, this very small resilience training program, but it was all these things combined. And they also went to pass fail. So that's in medical school. But for physicians and residents, you know, you have to look at the work hours right away. And you have to also look at the support system. They don't have a support system. The retaliation that they experience, that has to be addressed. There has to be a safe way for them to report, you know, sexual abuse, emotional abuse by superiors. I mean, right now, as a resident, your whole future lies with your attending physician. So, you know, you don't want to do anything to upset him or her your whole life. You know, if they're having a bad day, they could just grade you, you know, like put something down in your record and it could ruin your, your career or mark you. So we have to have a system where they feel free and safe to address these issues as they come up. That doesn't exist. Even though the ACGME says, oh, they can report anytime anonymously. No, that doesn't happen. Their names will come out or, and nothing will happen to the program. So a lot of work needs to be done. But the sleep deprivation, once you're a physician, needs to be addressed. You need to hire more physicians, hire more residents so patients can be treated adequately and physicians can do their best work. I feel in the movie, you present a dichotomy, right? So you have a lot and concentrate somewhat on legislative change, but then you also focus on Pamela Weibel and her ideal medical clinics, and that's much more grassroots. Do you think change ultimately will come from legislative change, from grassroots change, or from both? It really will take both. That's what we're seeing. We cannot rely on these huge organizations and hospitals and medical schools to change themselves. What we saw in the film with legislation is a great first step. And what happened was John and Michelle Deal, who are Kevin's parents, they pushed through this legislation with the help of a local lawmaker in Missouri to make it more transparent what the depression rates were at medical schools. So when families want to consider allowing their son or daughter to go to that medical school, that they would have access to these rates. And why that's important is because once it's transparent, then they'll be forced to do something about it or else they could see their admissions suffer. So it's a financial motivating factor to have this information be more transparent. What also is happening now that's not part of the film, but there is a movement to actually sue hospitals for some of these abuses that we're seeing, these human rights 
abuses, for unlawful firings of these residents and physicians. So we see that the legal system is an important part of the remedy. At the same time, doctors, even though they're busy, need to recognize that we are facing the corporatization of medicine. And even though union is a dirty word in medicine, it's something that they need to talk about. Because just like assembly line workers, you need rights and you need some entity to protect your rights because they're usually so busy and that's what's capitalized on. They're so busy just getting through their day, doing their rounds, they don't have time to organize. Residents do have a union. It's the Committee of Interns and Residents, CIR, and it's getting more attention now. We work with them. They have the rights to show the film to all of their residents across the country. But they do represent residents, and there are tough battles across the country. But ultimately, it's better for the hospitals, too, because now you're negotiating with one entity as opposed to, you know, on an individual basis. And of course, it's helpful for the residents. So there is a union, and there is a physician's union, and they're sporadic. There's one in the Northwest that's pretty active, but it's something that needs to be discussed as we face the corporatization of healthcare. As we talk of human rights, I want to come back to Hawkins. Um, He really is, as I was saying before, the protagonist of the story. But in some ways, Mm -hmm. this this is a cautiously optimistic story, right? Because as we follow Hawkins towards the end, you know, his marriage is still up in the air. He's out looking at starting his own ideal medical clinic, but still having doubts about whether he'll be accepted Uh, whether his history of his suicide attempts will affect him negatively. Why do these stories about doctors matter? Well, first of all, there is a huge doctor shortage that we're facing in this country. What we're seeing is because of the system, physicians are retiring early. They're opting to practice in alternative ways. You know, they're opting out. So here we are, more and more people are depending on the healthcare system as baby boomers age. At the same time, we're seeing a shortage of physicians, and we see it all the time in rural areas. I mean, hospitals shutting down, you know, no doctors for, you know, 30 miles or more. So this is a critical time in our society to deal with this impending crisis, which we're already experiencing because we're already seeing hospitals closing down and doctors leaving. And what's happening when doctors retire early, not only does it affect, you know, a doctor shortage, but think of the wealth of information that they have the experience level. So they're not mentoring young doctors the way they used to. And of all professions, medicine is one where you really rely on a mentor. So if the mentors are gone, now who's mentoring them are third-year residents or, you know, a first-year attending. You know, you don't have the wealth of experience because they're gone. So It's a huge problem for the residents, for young physicians, and for patients, too, because they don't have the experienced doctors by their bedside. They're more and more being seen by these PAs, the physician's assistants, and the nurse practitioners. So they don't have that education level, that experience, that training that we did. And it will be more and more so as time goes on and more and more physicians feel like, I'm out. 
I'm out of here. I can take my money and invest and, you know, other things and relax and not have to deal with being treated like a cog in a wheel. As we talk about this, it is August 12, 2019. Very recently, a well-known physician, Leif Dalin, the physician on fire, just announced that it was his last day in his anesthesia practice. Leif, I believe, is 42 years old. He is the author of the Physician on Fire blog. How do you feel about hearing these stories of physicians who are embracing their financial independence? And how does that play into the story that Do No Harm narrates for us? I think it's a scary time. I really do. Because physicians really want to take care of their patients. They don't want to leave, but they just don't want to have the schedules that they're being forced to cover in our current healthcare system. So yeah, I see this all over the place. You know, young physicians in their 40s getting ready to leave. I mean, it's great for them that they can. Although, let me tell you, Physicians have lived in a bubble, and so they're always not the best business people. Even their life experience is very limited because they've spent their lives in books, and then the rest of their time has been in hospitals. So they don't really have life experience. They don't really have experience, you know, financial experience, you know, taking care of their own business matters. They're not as savvy as people who went to business school or even lawyers. I mean, it's a, it's a big education for them, a very big learning gap for them to even make it. And it's scary for them if they do decide to leave, even with the nest egg that they've been able to accumulate. Let's talk about that knowledge gap a little bit. So we have many physicians in this space who are now blogging about retiring early. On one side, it's like you almost want to applaud the fact right. that helping physicians stand up for themselves and make healthy life choices. On the other side, does it not worry you that people are leaving the system? How do you personally balance both the joy of seeing people self-differentiate and yet the fear of losing these important people from the system that needs them so much? It, it's exactly right. You know, I do applaud them. I think, you know, they need to for their own emotional well-being, for their own life balance. But that's not the solution. And maybe even personally for them, are they really going to be completely fulfilled flipping houses and, you know, day trading when they dreamt since childhood to take care of patients, you know, you do develop, you know, an apathy, you know, for they have something called compassion fatigue uh, with patients. So that's unfortunate. That needs to be addressed. Why does that compassion fatigue exist when you don't care about your patients anymore? Now you better leave because once you stop caring about your patients, why are you a physician? You start to question yourself. And that a lot of that has to do with this new concept that we hear about called moral injury. When you're forced to be in a system that is so counter to everything you feel that has integrity, it takes a toll on you and you want to get out. So the solution is not them leaving. The solution is creating an environment that they feel fulfilled and can mentor young doctors. I'll tell you the strangest, some people ask me, you know, what was the most shocking thing that you learned in making this film as an outsider, someone who's not a physician? And, you know, besides the sleep deprivation, which is obvious, very scary when you check into a hospital and you don't realize, you know, that your doctor has been up 24 hours and they are human. So even though 
some people say they need to learn continuity of care. The reality is they're human, and after 16 hours, they're making mistakes. So the other shocking thing is how physicians are treated. I, at least, always had respect for my physicians. I treated them with high regard, even though, you know, we're spending more time in the waiting room and all of that. I still respected my physicians, but how they're treated within the system is terrible. They're treated, starting from med school, like bad kindergartners, so that you have, like, what we're experiencing is, like, more pressure and less autonomy, you know, they're being like a cog in a wheel. You're just being to do this, do this, do this, do your rounds, don't make trouble, you know, keep your head down. And I just couldn't believe how they're treated by administrators. So that needs to change. So we need to change the environment to make it a more supportive environment, recognize that they're humans, valued human beings in our society, and let's address the problems so they feel fulfilled and want to stay. And they can invest on the side. So I'd like to close the discussion by asking kind of one of the biggest questions, which are, what is the consequence if we don't change? What is the consequence if the system stays the way it is right now? Well, we're already seeing the consequences and just imagine it getting worse and worse. Impersonal care, more medical errors. You know, there is a study that said medical errors are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. But you wouldn't know it because on a death certificate, there's no place that allows you to write medical mistake. So we don't really know the number of medical errors, but it's tremendous, the number. So the consequences are more preventable deaths from medical errors as our physicians become more and more stressed, work harder and harder, work more and more hours more physicians leaving, so the doctor shortage gets worse. I mean, these are huge consequences. So I hope the film, the website is donoharmfilm.com. Please feel free to reach out to us, you know, if you have any comments, but we want to open up this dialogue. We want to say, let's shine a bright light on this issue and work together to make it a healthcare system that works for both physicians and patients. Well, Robin, I really appreciate kind of this new voice that you've brought to our conversation because we tend to talk about financial independence, retire early, and we talk about the health system a lot in the U.S. It just, you can't help but think about your health care when you're thinking about your finances. And what's interesting is it affects all of us. So even if you're not a physician or you're not in a medical family, you're still being affected by this because sooner or later you're going to need health care. And what do you do about it? So this really is a conversation we all need to be having because I don't think any of us would like the idea that we would be flying on a plane where the pilot had been, been awake for 16 plus hours, but yet somehow yeah. it's okay for a doctor. I mean, how can that be right? I mean, truck drivers have a limit of the number of hours they can drive on a road, but doctors, you know, who take care of life and death can work unlimited hours. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's part of that old boy's tough guy demeanor, but it really, you know, 50% of physicians now are women and they're really tough too. And as I said, medicine has changed a lot. So we need to recognize medicine has become more complex. You know, we need to address the hours that they're working and what's happening within those hours that make it unsafe for them and for patients. 
I really like the point that you made that if the healthcare system weren't so flawed, then there would not be this reason for so many people wanting to quit early or retire early, right? You do hear about some of the physicians that stay physicians that we talk to that kind of retire or they scale back their hours. So they're still working. And it's what Doc's done. He's scaled back his hours. A lot of people we talk to, they're able to do that, but so few professions in the physician allow that, right? So there's still a lot of work that needs to be needs to happen. So mm-hmm. we really appreciate your voice, your contribution to this conversation that frankly, I was not aware of. I was oblivious. Mm. And I suspect that a lot of people who are listening to this are also not aware of this. And they probably right. desperately want to see the film. Where can <laughs> they see it? When is it available for public consumption? So for medical schools and hospitals right now, they can go to info, they can email us at info at donoharmfilm.com about hosting a screening at their hospital or medical school. And then in May, it will be on public television stations nationwide. And then right around that time, it'll be available on Amazon and other platforms. But if you want to be on our mailing list to make sure you know, you're notified, just email us or Facebook, Do No Harm Film. Just reach out to us and we'll keep you posted on when it's going to be available to the general public. Wonderful. Well, now we know how to get a hold of you and how to find out more <laughs> about it. What is up next for you, Robin? What new project? What's going to keep you busy for the next coming months? This is actually just getting this out to you know medical schools. It's really time consuming, but I also produce TV series on different networks. So we're always, you know, when you're a producer, you need to be juggling yeah. a lot of projects. So there are a lot of things in the works as well as the distribution for this film. So it's a full-time job and then some. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Robin Simon. Well, hey, everybody. This is usually where we insert bloopers, but Robin is so polished from her many years in TV that there were no bloopers. But we did have a really interesting follow-up conversation that we're releasing this Thursday as a bonus episode. So stay tuned for that bonus conversation. Mark it on your calendar. You haven't heard anything like it before. I think we recognize that our healthcare system is flawed and needs revamping. The one aspect I thought we did a good job on was producing good medical professionals in world-class medical schools. Now this documentary puts some doubt in my mind if that is the case. If you're involved in the medical field and would like to learn more about how to bring this film to a teaching hospital or a medical school that you're involved with, please reach out to Robin at info at donoharmfilm.com to see about scheduling a viewing with the producers. That's info at donoharmfilm.com. And as always, if you want to get the inside scoop, you can join the conversation in the What's Up Next Facebook group by texting the word next to 345-345. Doc and I are working on even more next level content. If you have ideas for topics or want to be on the podcast, the best way to engage is in our Facebook group by texting the word next to 345 Thanks for listening. That's a wrap. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.